So it is not controversial in a church with Christians to tell people not to look at pornography. That's not controversial yet. Um, People will sometimes get uncomfortable when you talk about pornography. They sometimes don't like talking about those kinds of things, and we've already talked about that, and that's, that's too bad. We have to talk about what God wants us to talk about, and God tells us to talk about this. Um, but people don't get upset. It's not controversial. But there is an element of this reality of pornography and talking about it in biblical categories that has been controversial. And it is, it is the thing that when I've had people upset with me on this issue, it's been over this. Um, speaking about this in different places, uh, maybe there's a question or two about pornography when I'm speaking about something else. And I'll make the following statement, which I think is true. Only arrogant men look at pornography. Or, put it a bit differently, only arrogant people look at pornography because women look at pornography too. Um, more men struggle with it than, than women, but there's plenty of women. A survey from 2013 indicated that 40% of online pornography was consumed by women. 40%. So it's not just the guy problem, although it's still chiefly uh, the guy, a guy problem. But only arrogant people look at pornography. And I've had people really upset with me about that. I've had people come up and say, how can you say that? You don't know how lonely I am. You don't know how frustrated I am. You don't know that my wife hasn't slept with me in six years. You don't know how hard it is. How do you know that I'm arrogant? I don't feel arrogant. I feel broken. Well, I'm not trying to make anybody upset. I don't, I don't want those people to be upset with me. But I don't think it is controversial to say that only arrogant men look at pornography. And I want to show you why from the book of James. James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is a passage that gives us something like the anatomy of sin. 
the anatomy of sin, how it works. And um, it's helpful for you to understand how a plant grows to see the anatomy of sin in this passage. Think of the anatomy of a plant. Um, There are uh, three parts of a plant. There's the root system. That's the really important part that drives the growth of the rest of it. It's underground. You don't see it. And then there's the shoot. That's the stem that grows up and holds the fruit. So the root, the shoot, the fruit. Those are the three parts of a plant. Um, And if you want to know how plants work, you have to know the relationship between those three realities. So uh, we had on the side of our house, we're trying to sell our house right now, and there's this ugly flower um, that we don't want growing up on the side of the house. So I went and I just, I had some cutting shears and I just got them all lined up, cut them off. Problem solved, but not really. Because you know, it grew back the next week, probably a couple days later, it grew back. Came back, cut it down lower on the stem. It grew back. You know the way this works. If, uh, if you want to get rid of the plant, it's not enough to pluck off the bud. It's not enough to chop off the stems. You have to dig out the root, or in my case, hose it with Roundup, which is uh, accomplishing the same thing. Um, I'm not a gardener. <laughs> I'm just uh, picking stuff up in the target aisle and hosing the ground. Our behavior works the same way. And there is categories in James chapter 3 that are analogous to that root and shoot and fruit. The fruit, there's, and this is for good and for bad. We'll talk about the good now and the bad in a little bit. The bad fruit in James 3 is in verse 16. Disorder in every vile practice. That's bad fruit in your life. So this is a fill in the blank. Think of the disorders. Think of the vile practices that are happening in your life. Maybe it's sinful anger. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's pornography. If something is a vile practice, it's a bad fruit. It's a bad behavior in your life. What is the bad stem that that grows off of? What is the bad stem, the bad shoot that holds up that bad fruit? Well, verse 16 also tells us, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. What is the shoot that holds up the fruit of vile practice? It's selfish ambition. It is sinful self-righteousness. I am selfishly ambitious for what I want. I don't care what you want. I don't care what God wants. I care what I want. I am selfish and I am ambitiously selfish. In my turning in on myself, I go and try to achieve things for myself. My selfishness has ambition. It tries to seek out more things. So, Selfish ambition leads to disorder and vile practice. What's the root system that holds up the shoot of selfish ambition? Verse 15. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Your disorder and vile practices, your porn, is built on your selfish ambition, and that is built on things that are earthly, unspiritual, demonic. If you're paying attention to those three things, you'll know that those are what Christians have referred to as the three enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is forces that are opposed to God that serves as the foundation as your, of your selfish ambition. It's worldly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. The devil is at the root of it. Your selfish ambition, your porn, has the devil in it. What that means is, only arrogant men look at porn. Because if porn is a vile practice, and it is, then that fruit is upheld by the shoot of sinful, selfish ambition. You are in it for yourself, and you don't care about other people. And at the heart of that is opposition to God, a heart that is oriented away from the Lord and towards the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so only arrogant men look at pornography. The disorder and the vile practice of pornography is upheld by a demonic, earthly, and unspiritual person who pridefully is in it for themselves. And if that's true, then what it means is that we will undercut pornography by nurturing humility. By nurturing a virtue that is at odds with the vice of selfish ambition. And to see this, flip over to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is a passage that is specifically written by the Apostle Paul to undercut selfish ambition. He uses the same exact phrase that James uses. We want to undercut selfish ambition with this idea of humility. And I think Paul here talks about three things. He gives us the principle 
of humility. In verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Not selfish ambition, but a humble consideration of others as more significant than yourselves. This is exhibit B, that only arrogant men look at pornography. Think of all the people that a man has to consider himself more important than in order to look at pornography. Let's take, let's take a married man. A married man who's looking at porn is considering his interests arrogantly, selfishly, ambitiously considering his interests above his wife. Who he vowed, in one way or another, to forsake all others. Forsaking all others. Or now you've got a digitized harem on your computer screen or on your cell phone. You're not considering her interests. You're not considering the pain that she's going to experience when this is discovered. You're not considering the way you're trashing the intimacy that's supposed to be connecting you two and you two alone. You're not thinking about her. You're considering your interests above any kids you've got. You know so I, I teach at Southern Seminary and Boys College. Uh, every week I am teaching hundreds of mostly, mostly men, uh, but plenty of women, but I'm talking about men here, but hundreds of men, 18 to 35, something like that. And so many of them are hooked on porn. I, I'm talking... I'm talking with 22-year-old young men who don't remember a time in their life when they weren't looking at porn. I know people who are in their mid-20s and they've spent two decades looking at porn. Two decades looking at porn when you're 25, 26, 27. And a humongous number of those people got introduced to porn from their dad found the pictures in the underwear drawer or in the box under the bed or the internet history. Walked in on dad. Sometimes dad gave it to him. Here you go, son. You're a man now. God help us. These guys are enslaved. They are trapped. And it's because dad was considering his interests as more significant than the interest of his son's. You have to consider your interests more significant than the people in your ministry. Whether you're a vocational minister or whether you're just a Christian who's involved in ministry in the local church. You're not thinking about how hard it's going to be for these people to swallow what you've done and look at you the same way again. And all the pain they're going to have to go through as they try to figure out what was true and what was not true. What, uh, what was real and what was not real. You're not thinking about them. You are not thinking about the interests of the people in the porn. 
These people are lost and dying. They're, we don't even have to talk about um, the, all the work that's being done now to reveal how much the um, human trafficking industry is involved in the production of pornography. That's a part of it. But we don't even have to talk about that. Because some people say, well, they, they're doing it. I mean, I can, I can look at it. It's their choice. Well, when we talk about human trafficking, that's not always the case. Um, but let's take the human trafficking out of it just to make it easy. We're supposed to love these people. We're supposed to have Christian compassion for these people. Um, we are supposed to want to love them with the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We're not supposed to slink off uh, to the basement and ogle them for three hours and uh, then turn them off like they don't have lives that matter, like they're not going to live forever. Listen, some of the darkest work I've ever done is read interviews and do research on what is going on in the lives of people in the pornography industry. I have a friend of mine, uh, a guy I know very well who's a Christian. Um, he is an EMT in the San Fernando Valley. That's where 90% of the pornography um, uh, in the world gets made, at least as recently as a couple years ago. He's an EMT in the San Fernando Valley. All these porn uh, studios there. Most of his calls are to porn studios. And I'm telling you, I don't have the heart to tell you what he has to go in there and deal with. You, you can't imagine the nightmarish, horrifying, overwhelming, disgusting messes that he has to go and deal with. And it's every day. Oh, we got to go to this studio again. This happened. You can't even imagine it. I don't have the heart to tell you. These are people who need Christ. It looks like they're smiling and having fun on TV. Do you know uh, one uh, former porn actress who's now our sister in Christ, uh, she has uh, been interviewed by a couple of different news outlets, and she says um, that 90% of the women in pornography are drug addicted. And the reason they are drug addicted is because they can't do what they're asked to do without being high. They have to get high in order to have this happen and smile while they're doing it. It's all a lie. The whole thing is a lie. Guys think, oh, they love it. Look at that. No, they don't. They're high. They're high. The, you have a better chance of getting murdered if you are a pornographic actress than if you are an L.A. police officer. Did you know that? More porn actresses get murdered than L.A. police officers. It's death. It's death and destruction everywhere. Nobody's happy. They're making some wicked trade for money, but we're supposed to love them more than that. You, you have to consider your interests as more significant than theirs in order to do this. And it violates the principle of humility. Who says... Who says other people, count the interests of others is more significant than your own? God does. This is our task. And porn undercuts that. That's the principle of humility. Then there's the, the practicality of humility. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look 
not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is building on that principle of humility, but it's super practical. Think how this, so many verses in the Bible we breeze over, but really the, the verse demands us to stop and think like, well, if I really let that trickle into my heart, that's going to mean all kinds of things. This is, this is a practical verse. It's, it talks about what we look at and what we think about. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's asking us to do something. Here's what we usually do. The alarm goes off. If you're like me, I'm immediately, as soon as my alarm goes off, I am, if I've gotten plenty of sleep uh, the night before, my brain's racing when my alarm goes off. And I'm thinking, okay, I got to get showered. I got to get the kids out of bed. I got to shave. I got to brush my teeth. I've got to get to the office by this amount of time because I have to write this sermon and I have to send this email and have this phone call and the meeting start at 930. And so I got to meet with these and I'm going and I got to get home at six because then I got to do this. And like, I'm, that's what I'm doing. That is me waking up and looking to my own interests. I'm just thinking about the things that are going on. And the Bible says, I'm not allowed to do that. I have to look not only to my own interests, but to the interests of others. So that means I have to think, okay, you know what? Lauren has to get up and get, my wife's name is Lauren. Lauren has to get up and get showered too. And Lauren has to pack lunches for the kids and pack lunch for me. And she's got a house that she's going to have to keep up all day uh, while the kids run around and mess up behind her. Like, I've got to think about what she has to do as much as I have to think about what I have to do. What does that mean as far as practicality with pornography? If, if we're going to overflow in behavior from the principle of humility and think about what is good for others, not just what's good for me, then this has everything to do with how I fight against pornography and for purity. One of the things that I can do in order to implement Philippians 2.4 is to be honest with people about my struggle before I sin. People are nervous about doing this. Well, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to wear anybody out. I don't want to impose myself on somebody's life. But here's the thing. Here's why that's not true. Because if you can't fight and win for purity alone, which you can't do, and if your sins will complicate the lives of people you love, then the most humble and sacrificial thing to do is to ask for help before that mess happens. If, if you need help and can't fight alone, and if your sins will make a mess, then it's loving to ask for help before the mess. I say to people when I'm counseling them, if you're in trouble, call me. Call me at 2 in the morning. Call me at 6 a.m. Call me at 11 o'clock at night. Oh, you don't want me to call you. I do want you to call me then because I don't want you to call me at 10 at night when your wife is throwing you out of the house. Like, I want to I fix the potential problem before we have to fix a disaster. You, you will love me and consider my interests above your own if you'll call me before you make a mess. Another way that you can do this is to take aggressive measures to deal with your sin. 
You ever seen those uh, wolf man movies, the werewolf movies, where he knows the full moon's coming? And what does he do? That's right, he chains himself up. He knows it's coming and he chains himself up. You're an idiot. If you're a werewolf man and you see the full moon coming and you think, oh, I'll just fight against it. No one does that. You take aggressive measures to chain yourself up so you can't do what you know you're going to do. That's what the deal is with passwords on the internet, passwords on the computer, giving up the phone. These things don't change you. Nobody thinks they change you. You, you, If you want porn bad enough, you can get it. But you ought to take aggressive measures to make it as hard as possible for you to get it. So you've got to go through a lot of stop signs before you sin. Take aggressive measures. This is Jesus. We talked about this uh, two sessions ago. Cut out your eye. Cut off your hand. Take aggressive measures. That is humble and loving because it's seeking your interests above others to think it's more important for you to be able to check ESPN sports scores on your phone instead of saving your family the pain of an internet porn problem. Who needs to update Facebook? Who needs to update Twitter from your phone? Throw the thing away. Get a flip phone. You'll be all right. No one ever died from it. That is a very practical way. I'm going to love my wife. If I, if I can't be trusted with an iPhone, I'm going to love my wife. Throw the thing away. That's the, the other things we could say, but that's the practicality of humility. But here's the most profound thing. And if you're, this is the last session of four, and we've seen this again and again and again and again and again. That principle of humility and that practical expression of humility grows out of something that has everything to do with who Jesus is. I think if we were going to paraphrase what Philippians 2, 2 to 11 says is you need to be humble. You need to be humble by loving others. And in order to do that, look to Jesus. I think that's what it says. And it talks a couple of things. When, when Paul talks about Jesus to help us see him, he he singles out several different things. One of the things is he, he asks you to look at Jesus' glory. He was in the form of God. That, the form of God. Just a few little words. But if you think about that for a second, that stands for glory that you will be beholding forever. That stands for glory that he possessed as he enjoyed the Trinity, as he enjoyed the heavenly host, praising his glorious name for an eternity before we ever were a blink of the eye in our life. That was his, the form of God. That's who he was. But then the second thing is he humbled himself. He walked away from it. Who of you would do that? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. If it were perfect and wonderful and everybody loved me and it was comfortable, I would not walk away from it. I can't imagine it. But Jesus did. And it was owed to him. But he gave it up. And he walked in the dirt. And he got punched in the face. And he got spit in the eye. And he humbled himself to get a better kind of glory. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. 
the, the point of that part is that humility gets glory. Humility leads to glory. Selfish ambition leads to disorder and vile practice. But the point is, look to Jesus who was in the form of God. Limitless glory. But he humbled himself and made himself nothing, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that he get even more highly exalted. Look to Jesus. When you're trying to figure out what this humility looks like, look to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, you will find the goal of your own humility. Jesus is an example of your own humility that you should be pursuing. He gave up everything to die. He is the perfect example of one who considered the interests of others as more significant than ourselves, than himself. So we should be the kinds of people that Jesus was. Jesus is the goal for our practice of humility. But Jesus is not just the goal. He's also the ground for our practice of humility. When we look to Jesus, we see not just the example, but we see his work that makes it possible for us to do what he did. How are we? So here's, here's what this means. If you ever really, 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 from the bottom of your heart, are concerned for the interests of others in a way that's superior to your concern for yourself, that takes a miracle of grace. You can't do it on your own. You can do nice things for people because you want them to think good things for you and have this like sophisticated pridefulness and sophisticated selfish ambition. But if you really, with reckless disregard for your own good, when your wife says, it's 10 o'clock, you, go to, you went to bed at 10 o'clock and it's 10.05 and sleep is just right there. And she says, oh, honey, I left the, the painkiller downstairs and I have a headache. Could you go get that for me? If you don't go, but say, you know what, babe, I'm going to go get the Tylenol. That's a miracle of grace. When everything in your body is screaming for your own interests and you serve the interests of somebody else, that's grace. How are you going to do that? Well, it takes this one who was in infinite glory and he cast it all aside and he lived a perfect life and became obedient to the point of death on a cross for you. Paul is not just describing the example that Jesus set. He is describing the power he acquired for you and for me to be humble. And so selfish ambition is at the heart of porn. And that means at the heart of purity is going to be humility. Christ-centered, Christ-purchased humility that we get when we turn our eyes on Jesus. And look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I said I'd quit at about 1.30. It's 1.36. So let me, there's more, plenty more we could say about that. But let me just stop and trust the Lord that it might be more relevant at this point to, uh, 
hear your questions. How can I help? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. He's asking what resource would be good for wives who've, whose husbands have, um, have gone down a path. Um, and so in the back of Finally Free, there's an appendix about helping spouses and fiancés respond. But that is one appendix in one book, and there's plenty of stuff that's not there. That's, so that's more just to get you started. Uh, there is a workbook um, by Mary Asher um, called Heartbroken and Healing. Oh, you've got it downstairs? Okay, so it's downstairs in the Resource Center. Um, And she wrote that for wives who are responding to adultery, porn, that kind of thing in their marriage. So, uh, yeah, it's downstairs in the Resource Center, Heartbroken and Healing by Mary Asher. Yes. You dealt with the issue issue of, uh, yes, forgiveness, but consequences. Mm -hmm. The story of the young man that could have pled not guilty and got scot-free. Mm-hmm. At what point, when we're dealing with this issue and we're counseling, while I'm not a fan of, of divorce, um, I have encouraged seasons of separation when I've asked the counselee to say, are you willing to accept any consequences? And they say yes. But when you begin to, the, the, I guess the question is, at what point do we, exercise the forgiveness mm-hmm. and shun the consequences or have forgiveness with consequences? And where do you draw the line? That's a great question. Um, I, I've got an answer to that. That's my crack at it, but um, there might be a different way to answer it. So yeah, it's a great question. How do we, how do we balance forgiveness and consequences and what's the, the line in between? I think that my best answer at this point is, has to do with the level of imposing consequences. So um, I think we're talking about consequences when we're talking about natural ramifications that flow from the sin. But as soon as we start talking about imposing things, now we're not talking about consequences anymore. We're talking about a, a failure to forgive. So for example, um, if a husband out of the overflow, you know, he's looking at porn, he commits adultery. Um, I'm going to advise, I don't think you can command it, um, but I'm going to advise that wife to hold off on sexual relations. I'm going to advise the couple to hold off on sexual relations together for a season so that we could establish that somebody contracted disease. Um, I think that's a, that's not a failure of a wife to forgive to say, I'm not going to have sex with you right now. Uh, that is a consequence of the sin. Um, and then, um, if a wife said, I'm never having sex with you again after this, that would demonstrate a failure to forgive. Um, so, to make it a little bit more complicated, um, if a wife 
so the husband says, I committed adultery. Um, I think it's consequences when she says, get out of this bedroom right now. You are not sleeping in here tonight. Uh, Look, you're supposed to be on the couch when you commit adultery. That's why God made the couch. Uh, is for you to sleep on it when you commit adultery, all right? Um, So that's not forgiveness, a failure to forgive. That's a consequence because sex ought to be a unitive act. It's supposed to bring us together. And when you trash our relationship, sex isn't supposed to be this just overflowing thing that happens immediately. So you're supposed to be on the couch for the first couple of weeks. But by the time we're starting to get into a season of this isn't changing, and I don't have an elapsed amount of time for that, I think now we're imposing consequences. And so that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, does this seem to be a natural overflow of what he did or of what has happened? Or are we doing this to make it hard on him? That's my crack. Yes. How would, you, how would you evaluate the effectiveness of, I guess, secular resources in concert with uh, books like Finally Free? And what I mean is 12-step programs, Sex Addict, Anonymous, Out of the Shadows, uh, I guess just secular counseling recovery resources. Where do those fit in the paradigm of recovering within the church? Yeah, so I think, um, I think God wrote the Bible— Uh, to help us know how to live and change and be different in a world fraught with problems. And so I think the Bible is all about um, the kind of problems that come into your life when you look at pornography. Um, Secular counseling, uh, secular resources, um, they have things in them that are helpful. But the interesting thing is, the elements of secular resources that are going to be helpful are going to be the parts of those resources that are most like the Bible. Uh, And the parts that are going to be unhelpful are the parts that are least like the Bible. And so what happens is you have this confused thing. You have helpfulness where where they've stumbled on something inadvertently that was biblical and unhelpfulness where uh, they ignore or deny biblical realities. And so I think what's best is if Christians just stick with the source and not have to sort out the wheat from the chaff, because we don't, we don't have to come from behind and deal with the deficit that unbelievers do, because we have God's revelation right here. That's fine. There seem to be a few more voices in the church these days that would include pornography and something like porneia, which Christ seems to say would give grounds for divorce. How do you respond to to that kind of question? Yeah, so this is... um, um, So I I do think that porneia, as a term broadly construed, does include the issue of pornography. Um, I think that... What I, what I say is I think that's an issue for local churches to deal with because, uh, here, here's the thing, there are two or three different Christian evangelical approaches that churches will adopt as far as what's permissible and what's not in, the, in that divorce teaching. And so what I think you need to do, we, we believe in the authority of Scripture, and we believe that that same Scripture gives us pastors and teachers to help us sort these things out. 
Um, and, and the reason it's so complicated is because not every person who's looking at pornography is created equal. So you've got one guy who's got an ongoing struggle and quits and asks for help. So comes forward and says, hey, here's what's going on uh, and begins to change. You've got another guy who is discovered and won't change. I mean, there's all kinds of permutations in there. And so I think we need to figure out, hey, not just is pornography grounds for adultery, but what is the nature of this person's struggle? What's the nature of the church's teaching? So maybe I'm punting a little bit, but I think that's a little bit grist for the mill as far as what the church is teaching and, um, uh, and what this individual person's struggle is. I think it's a case-by-case. I'm not even exactly sure how to ask this, but how would you help someone dealing with pornography who's already feeling all sorts of condemnation, they're a believer, um, and yet you want to bring them to a place of genuine godly repentance without adding to the condemnation they're already feeling? This is the, uh, this is the amazing thing that Christians can do that nobody else can do because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So the cross of Jesus Christ is this explosion of judgment and mercy. I mean, at the very moment that we see God in the most horrifying act of judgment, I mean, pouring out the sins of his people onto an innocent person. That's, (laughs) I'd say again, a horrifying example of judgment we also see limitless mercy and grace at the same exact moment. And so what that means to me is that as Christians, we are not allowed to talk about sin without talking about the cross. So um, we have to be able to say this is sinful and this is wrong, but Jesus has covered it in his blood if you have faith in him. And so trust in the Lord, ask for forgiveness, and believe that the Lord has granted it. I think that that's what the cross allows us to do. And I think that's actually what repentance allows you to do. It allows you to say it and forsake it, understanding that that's happening under a banner of someone who paid for it. Uh, in the discussion on confession, uh, the natural response is we, of course, confess to God and confess to the person that we have offended. At what point do we require that confession to be made public? Yeah, so um, I think that a confession needs to be as public as the offense. So the, the, the way I say it is that um, uh, if, if you were going to draw a circle around everybody that needed it, so you knew all these people, and you're going to draw a circle around just the ones who need to be confessed to. God's always in the circle because every sin is a sin against him. But then who else is in it? Um, Depends. Your wife is always in it if you're married because it's a violation of your marriage vows to indulge in pornography. Um, other people that might be impacted by your sin or your kids or something like that. Um, the more public the offense gets, um, the more public will the confession need to be. So a pastor, for example, who is uh, just on the other end of the continuum, who... Uh, is going to have to step down from a position, needs to confess that because now all of a sudden his sin has implicated every member of his flock and he has to confess that sin and ask for forgiveness. 
but I don't think that same demand for a public confession is um, is on every individual member of the flock because their their sin doesn't have the potential to be that public. Uh, so if a sin gets public, then the confession would need to be.